Evolution, according to the standard view, works by natural selection driven by genes and acquired characteristics can't play a part in evolution because they're not inherited, I think. Australian geneticist Professor Benjamin Aldroyd believes that epigenetics can explain some of the mysteries in evolutionary biology. Um, uh, rapid adaptation, for example. He's Emeritus Professor of Behavioural Genetics at the University of Sydney, and he has a book called Beyond DNA, How Epigenetics is Transforming Our Understanding of Evolution. And he's with me now from Cairns, where he had to get up really early. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Kim. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Did I get that right? That epigenetics, it's the study of how behaviour and the environment can affect the way genes work. It can affect gene expression, turn them on and off, but has not been assumed to be inheritable. Okay, uh, let's go back to the most basic. If you have a liver cell which divides, it doesn't produce a big toe cell. It produces another liver cell. And the reason it does that is that it is epigenetically marked so that certain genes are expressed, which turn it into a liver cell, and other genes are not expressed. And you say so that, epigenetically because the genes are identical. The genes are identical, but the way they're expressed differs, and that is heritable between cell divisions. Now, for some genes, some of the time, it's also heritable across generations. So there's um, lots of examples of that, which we can get into if you want. Um, I hope we will. Um, but that's what epigenetics is. So give me some examples of that. Well, um, in you and me, there are about 50 genes which are only uh, one copy is expressed, either from the mother or the father. So... Um, they, the, these genes are ones which are to do with competition between fetuses. So something like a growth factor in a fetus, that this uh, its expression or the optimal expression depends on whether it came from a mother or a father. So let's uh, think about a growth factor, IGF-2, interuterine growth factor 2. If it is it a fetus and it comes from a father, It that gene may not be related at all to another fetus in, shall we say, the same cat. Okay, so we've got a cat. She's pregnant. She's got four fetuses in there. They're all from different fathers. So a patrigene, a gene from a father, is not present in any of the other fetuses. And this sets up an evolutionary competition so that it up-expresses this gene that makes the fetus grow bigger. And what does the mother's gene do? It responds by tamping down the expression. So you get this kind of equilibrium at the end of, uh, you know, after many hundreds of generations where the mother's gene is switched off and the father's gene is switched on. So this is an example of epigenetic inheritance. When you have a gene which is marked, 
depending on which environment it came from, from a mother or father. How so that's you... the least controversial controversial example. We'll talk about more controversial ones in a while, perhaps, but your work on bees, you are a bee expert. How does that inform your work on epigenetics? Yeah, well, this is how I got started in this area. Um, if, if I ask, can I, am I allowed to ask the interviewer questions? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, let me do that. What is the thing that comes to mind when you're thinking about a bee colony? What, what's the most uh, salient feature of a social insect colony? Um, heaps of them are exactly the same. Mm, I wouldn't agree with that. But one of the things is that... Um, You've got queens and workers, right? You've got big queens that lay all the eggs and little workers that don't lay any eggs. Aren't the workers all the same? Uh, well, no. Um, they're pretty different because uh, they've got different fathers. A queen bee mates about uh, 50 times when she's uh, about six days old and she never mates again. So... A colony of bees has multiple subfamilies in it. Oh, I didn't um, realise that. I assumed that the workers were kind of clones. Well, yes, that that was uh, a view that uh, was a very Victorian view. I don't mean to impugn you. Yeah, well, thank you very <laughs> much. View of the world, but um, <laughs> yeah. So it used to be that we thought that um, queens only mated once, but. Um, Back in the 1980s, we discovered these genetic markers and did studies to show that actually they made about 50 times. Remarkable. What were we talking about? Bees. <laughs> I said, yes, how, I does oh, you bee. work, how does he work on bees oh, in yes. full epigenetics? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so um, you have queens and you've got workers. They come from the same egg. So how do these castes develop? This was a big question. Yeah. And it has to be something to do with gene expression, right? It has to be something to do with changing expression of different genes that make some, uh, depending on the environment, that you either develop as a queen or a worker. And we know that that's because of uh, royal jelly. If you feed a very young larvae royal jelly, it will develop as a queen. And if you feed it just a more Spartan diet of um, pollen and nectar, it develops as a worker. And it's just a two-day or three-day window in the development of that larva that will convert it from being a, a worker to a queen or a What's queen. What's in that royal jelly? Is it the hormones? No, it's just super good food. Um, it's just packed with sugar mostly. Um, yeah, it's, it's not really understood why it has such a remarkable effect. It's secreted by a gland on the workers' heads um, and they just go and feed individual larvae with this uh, secretion. And, and so, it converts if you... Yeah, go so, so you're saying that it's the nutrition in royal jelly that turns that, some genes on or others off and makes a queen bee? Co correct, it must be that. Right. So people have been studying... Um, looking for these epigenetic marks that we can quantify these days uh, in a DNA sequencer. We can see which uh, genes have been marked and which genes haven't, which genes have been switched off and which genes have been switched on. And um, people look for these marks and found um, some differences. But in particular, they found that the enzymes which uh, do this marking business 
were affected, turned off or on, according to the um, what the larva was fed. This work was done at ANU, Australian National University in Canberra, by Richard Maleska, and um, he showed that um, the royal jelly itself affects gene expression via these enzymes, which actually do the DNA marking, actually put the little marks on the DNA to say this gene should be turned off and this gene should be uh, expressed. All right. So that's why I got interested in it. I did some work with uh, Maleska and um, that, that's what turned me on to it. And then the other thing that um, uh, is very interesting about social insects and bees is, as I said, the queen bees mate with about 50 males. So that means that all the workers in the colony have, well, effectively, have different fathers. So it's the possibility of competition between these families. So I discovered that if you take the queen away from a colony and some of the workers start laying eggs, which they do, um, if a colony has no queen, the workers will start to lay eggs. Um, some the daughters of some fathers will activate their ovaries much more quickly than the workers of other fathers. And so we were wondering whether that was an epigenetic mark that the fathers were competing by with each other by the marks that they put on the genes in their semen. And um, I would say that the jury is out on that, but it's exactly the sort of situation where you would expect uh, epigenetic inheritance to occur because you've got this possibility of competition between um between subfamilies, between fathers' progeny. If epi- Does that answer the question? Well, <laughs> yeah. Is, if epigenetics is a thing, as you just explained, then is there ever such a thing as a clone? Oh, good question. So uh, let's think about identical twins. So they do start off um genetically well they remain for their lives um genetically um identical but their epigenome diverges over time so by the time someone's 50 a a, a pair of identical twins are 50 they are quite different because these epigenetic marks change over a lifetime but are those changes inheritable is the question isn't it uh well i would say not in um in mammals and the reason for that is that all these marks bar a few like these imprinting genes that we just talked about um are stripped off and this is what's called weissman's barrier um weissman features a lot in my book um so he was a guy that lived uh, in freiburg in germany uh last century or the century before last and he said that anything acquired in life is stripped off um, in the fetus or in the first couple of cell divisions of a pregnancy. And that makes complete sense because you've got the epigenome of a sperm and an egg. If they combine, it becomes some, it becomes a zygote, you know, a, 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 an egg. And um, at that point... You don't want all the sperm genes working and the egg genes working. You want the zygote genes working. So what the fetus does, or little zygote does, is it strips off everything, bar a few, and starts again. So I always like to say that, um, you know, we, we think about a, a blacksmith, you know, he's got a big 
right arm for bashing the anvil with with a very heavy weight and then so you look at that and think that that's exceptional and then you look at the child the son also got a big bicep why is that not because he inherited it from his father but because he too works in the same shop and gets the same muscle so i think the uh idea of inheritance of acquired characteristics in humans and in mammals is uh, remains and extremely unlikely. We can get into some of the evidence which people have published and talk about it, but I conclude, going in with a very open mind, that these effects don't occur in mammals. They're very common in insects and um, nematode worms and things like that. But in mammals, because of this Weismann's barrier, we call it, where it's all stripped off and then put back on by the fetus itself, um, it's extremely rare in And so the subtitle of your book, How Epigenetics is Transforming Our Understanding of Evolution, should go on to say evolution in insects and nematode worms. Not completely. And, and this is a subtle point. So let's imagine a population of uh, mice or something that is on an island and it gets um, extremely stressed, okay? So it, by, by environmental change of some sort. So it, all its genes uh, that it can alter will be, say it gets cold, okay? Well, no, this, a better example is it, let's say it gets hot. So we've got every gene in all of the population that has got anything to do with thermoregulation set for high temperatures. And maybe that allows them to survive. So we've got this setting now, not a change in DNA, but a change in the setting for the whole population set high. And that allows them to survive. At that point, natural selection kicks in and fixes that high expression of the genes which are to do with thermoregulation in that population. So it allows extremely rapid adaptation to an environmental change that would not be possible if a population just sat around waiting for a mutation to happen right. that would start to change. And it has to happen at hundreds of genes simultaneously. So I think this is a really different way of looking at evolution and a better one. It's what we call phenotype-first evolution. The phenotype changes and then evolution sort of catches up to fix that change in the population. So just talk me through that, but you've got your mice on a hot island. Their epigenetics enable them to survive. How, How does that flow down evolutionarily? Okay, so the uh, first of all, they're alive. That's really important. Right, so and breeding. So there's a really strong stress, uh, uh, yeah, because there's still a big population upon which natural selection can operate. Okay, so that's the first thing. Yeah. And it's at every gene in the body simultaneously. So all of the mice, or sorry, a large proportion of the mice are still alive because they haven't died from heat stress. And um, then... Natural selection kicks in to change those settings. So the gene, one or two genes which control the uh, amount of marks on the genes which to do with thermoregulation, they uh, go up or down to um, 
make sure that the expression stays over generations at that point. So you've got to have several generations after these epigenetic after these epigenetic settings are reset to a higher level to allow them to survive, but that has to go on for several generations and then it will get fixed. I don't Otherwise, know if the population... this qualifies what I'm about to offer. It qualifies as one of your more controversial examples, but it it is said that an example of epigenetic inheritance is um, shown by children of men who have experienced extreme trauma, for example, Holocaust survivors. What do you say? Yeah, so th this is uh, controversial, um, and um, I won't use the Holocaust survivors example. I will use what's known as the that Dutch famine winter. So um, back during World War Two, the the uh, Dutch Dutch government in exile in England uh, called for a railway strike, and the Nazis didn't like this, so they deliberately starved the population. They put the everybody had a ration card for you know getting food etc. And they set the ration at a level that was below starvation. And then because the Dutch being Dutch, they recorded the size of the heads and the lengths of all the babies that uh, were born during that period. And they concluded that if the mother was starved in the first trimester, this had a really significant effect on uh, the person for the rest of their life. Okay, the middle not so bad, and at the end, even though the um, even though the uh, child tended to be much smaller, the effects for lifeline effects were quite small, and it was argued that this was because in the first trimester the fetus is being prepared by the mother or by itself, not sure which, um, for a life of privation and low. Um, you know, low-calorie intake. Uh, and it's true that when they looked at people in their 50s who were born during these periods, the uh, epigenetic marks on the genes of the body were different depending in which trimester they, the um, child had, you know, the starvation had happened, maternal starvation had happened. So this has been touted as a great example of epigenetic inheritance, but I'm not sure it's epigenetic inheritance. But is right? it inheritance? It is something that like you've only got one generation so far. Exactly, exactly. Then some people looked at the next generation, so the children of these people who had uh, the grandchildren of the original, the grandchildren, people. right? Yep. And and people thought there were effects there too. But it was kind of an online survey and uh, self-reports, and I don't think anybody would really um, – well, it, it, it seems to me that it remains extremely controversial. Somebody else has In this given... regard, I'm, I'm with Weissman. <laughs> it's all stripped <laughs> off apart from these 50 imprinted genes, and uh, it might there might be something there on the margins, but it's not a big deal. Somebody asks – my listener asks me to ask you about – the Japanese scientist who made a rat frightened of cherry blossom using electric shock and the rat mated and then died and the offspring were frightened of cherry blossom. Mm. 
Well, I'm unaware of that study. Um, I've seen things like it. Um, I, I recall um, somebody frightening the bejesus out of fish by waving a, a plastic model of a predator at them. And um, they claimed that the next generation, the sons only, the males, were um, they, their behaviour changed in response to predators. Um, it's possible, but I'm not sure that it's... Uh, I, I don't think the data is sufficient at the moment to to hang your hat on it. All if right. these effects are there, they're pretty small. So given your Wiseman's barrier and given your discarding of the inherited effects of epigenetics in, as far as I can tell, mammals, then I'm, I'm yet to understand how epigenetics is transforming our understanding of evolution. It's because of this phenotype first... Uh, uh, evolution. So think, think we, mice we on a hot did, island. Think, think mice. Think that sort of thing. All right. There's also lots of other uh, ways in which epigenetics affects evolution. For example, we have these things called jumping genes. So these are uh, better known, or perhaps technically known as transposable elements. Um, the maize genome is sixty percent of the 60% of the sequence is these jumping genes. They're ancient viruses and they hang around inside um, the genome just being replicated. You might know about herpes viruses in humans which replicate in our cells or sit dormant in our DNA. So they're those kind of viruses. So uh, if a plant is really stressed, it these things become released. Most of the time they're hammered by um, what we call DNA methylation and they're stopped from expressing themselves. But if the plant becomes stressed, then its ability to control these transposable elements is reduced and they break out of the DNA, float around in the nucleus and insert themselves in other places. When they do that, they change the gene area that they insert into. So you have this mechanism. I don't think it's like uh, intended or anything like that, if you can have something that's intentional in evolution. Mm. But it is a genuine effect where a, an individual which is under nutritional stress or some sign of stress, drought stress, um, releases these transposable elements probably because they can't keep them under control and this changes the genome. So that's an effect on of um, epigenetics on evolution. Another one is that the major mark, which is called DNA methylation, that's a little thing that sits on top of the DNA, um, that process of DNA methylation, which is integral to our gene expression control system, actually mutates DNA. So this is a direct way that epigenetics affects evolution by mutating DNA directly. What so it's complicated, but there are lots of ways which um, epigenetics affects the course of evolution. There is a, a question. I mean, there is no such thing as a gay gene, all are agreed. But you have written about homosexuality and whether epigenetics has a role in that. What is your opinion? Uh, yeah, so 
homosexuality uh, in humans is um, a funny thing because it's extremely heritable. It runs in families. Um, but no one has been able to find any gene that affects homosexuality. So, for example, I had a friend um, back in the 80s um, who was gay and his identical twin was not gay. So uh, it's it does run in families and this is an exception. It's If it was a individual gene which affected homosexuality, then you would all identical twins who were gay, they'd both be gay. But in this case, they weren't. So it's assumed that this is some sort of epigenetic effect. And uh, one so of the reasons for the that... the implication of that is that in identical twins, the one twin was not born homosexual but became homosexual as a result of epigenetics. No, I don't think it's that. I think that um, it's, it's complicated... And um, in some cases, you have additional genes which affect sexual orientation and um, they are controlled epigenetically and sometimes it um, is not consistent across the two twins. So the epigenetic marks that were applied to one twin's genome didn't get uh, similarly applied to the other ones. So that's an example where... Um, it's not genetic determinism, but it's epigenetic determinism. Does that makes sense. <laughs> what's the big? Yeah, what's the big question that you would like an answer to in your pursuit of this area? Generally um, speaking, epigenetics. Okay, let's get back to bees. So um, I talked to you about um, how <clears throat> a beehive has um, got multiple subfamilies in it. So different fathers and we did an experiment it's very cool i'll tell you about my experiment we went and uh, caught some drone bees at a drone congregation area at number two oval at sydney university and we took the genome out of those four drones then we took some semen out of them and then we looked at and uh, used half of that semen to inseminate a queen at, with artificial insemination and then we looked at the genomes of the offspring and we found that the epigenetic marks in the fathers were transferred into the semen and we could see them in the offspring. So we thought, tally-ho, this is great. But ever since, no one has been able to find any phenotypic effect of these um, epigenetic marks. So they're there, but are they doing anything? Well, that's the first thing. But then the other thing is, is it that it is literally transferred or does the the young bee, the daughter, does she set up the same epigenetic pattern in herself? So if I can put it, if, if just say that again, we go father, semen, offspring, female, and we see the same pattern. Is it that that pattern gets directly transferred to the offspring? Or is it that it's all stripped off and then the offspring puts it back in in the same way for reasons that we don't understand? So for me, that I'm, I know it sounds a bit esoteric, but um, for me, that's, that's a really interesting question. Is it that there's something else 
that sets up the pattern or is it actually directly transferred to offspring? Interesting. Thank you for your time this morning. Benjamin Aldroyd, Beyond DNA, is the title of his book.